Understanding why women's expertise and authority is often resisted enables us to manage ourselves and others to ensure our leadership and their leadership is taken seriously. Here I speak to the authority on women's authority, Marianne Seacart, who shows us how. Hi, I'm Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a podcast offering insights for women leaders. Why grit in the oyster? Well, because an oyster makes pearls from a foreign object or irritation. And that's often how we can feel as women leaders in organizations today. The trick is not to get spat out, but to grow into that natural gem. Through conversations with leaders and experts in the field of women in leadership, I hope to offer insight and inspiration, as well as practical advice, helping you navigate those grit in the oyster moments or times in your career. It's an opportunity to reflect, to step out of the fray, to tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. It's my great pleasure to be speaking today to Marianne Sieghart, author of The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. Marianne spent 20 years as assistant editor and columnist at The Times and won a large following for her columns on politics through to parenthood. She's presented numerous programs on BBC's Radio 4, Start the Week, Profile, Analysis, One to One. She chaired the revival of the Brain Trust on BBC Two and recently spent a year as a visiting fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. She chaired the Social Market Foundation Think Tank, sits on numerous boards, and is currently a visiting professor at King's College London. A very warm welcome, Marianne. Thanks so much, Penny. I'm wondering if you could start just with you're a powerful woman with an incredibly successful and high-impact career. What's your story? Gosh, well, from a very, very early age, I knew what I wanted to do. So I can remember aged about 11 or 12, I was an avid reader of the Times, and I thought, I want to be a political columnist for the Times. Either that or editor of the Times. I never made it to editor, but I'm incredibly lucky that I achieved my ambition in life, which was to write a political column for the Times. And I enjoyed every minute of my life in journalism, which lasted, gosh, about uh, 35 years, I suppose. But I am a bit of a butterfly, or at least um, in Isaiah Berlin's terms, he wrote an essay called The Fox and the Hedgehog. And he mm -hmm. said that people are either foxes who are interested in all sorts of things in not a particularly deep way, or a hedgehog who are interested in just one thing and spend their lives finding out about it. And it might and be, I don't know, into 13th it. Mm. century French monasticism or something. You know, I'm yes. a fox, not a hedgehog. <laughs> and so even though, and, and most journalists are foxes, in fact, because, you know, we have to put our minds to often to something completely different every single day, which I really enjoyed. But even that wasn't quite varied enough. So as well as being a journalist, I always wanted to get involved in other things outside journalism. So I um, got involved with various pro bono, you know, with ch charity, sitting on the board of charities, campaigns. Uh, I, I helped to lead the campaign to stop Britain joining the euro, for instance, uh, though I was very pro EU. I thought it was uh, it would be a mistake for us to join the euro. Um, so sort of campaigns and pro bono work. Uh, I sat on the Heritage Lottery Fund as a trustee 
when that first started up, when the lottery started up. So I've always had a very, very broad range of interests. Help for, for the, this purpose, you might be interested to know, I helped to start an organization called Women in Journalism because there was nothing to support female journalists at the time. And, I, and we were very much in a minority and looked down on by the men. In fact, they called our organization Winch, Women in Journalism. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess I'm the sort of person who, if I see a problem, I want to go and do something yeah. about it. Wonderful. And you saw this uh, this problem in terms of the authority gap. Uh, thank you, Marianne, and because your book, The Authority Gap, is packed with rich insights and extensive research that speaks to this gender authority gap where we associate male with authority, where we still expect women to be less expert than men, and even resist the idea of women having authority over us. So what are the key facts around this gender authority gap that maybe surprised you most, given that you've just talked about a, you know, an expansive career? It has longevity, but as you say, it has a width to it. So you're able to look in the side and rear view mirrors quite consistently. What was the surprise to you? I think probably, I'm not sure if this is exactly the answer to your question, but what I found the most fascinating insight was talking to trans people about this. And the reason is that if you are a woman and suppose you're up for a job or a promotion against a male rival and he gets it and you don't, you may suspect that bias was at play, but it's incredibly hard to prove because you're different people and he may genuinely be better than you and more deserving of that job or promotion. But if you talk to trans people, they are exactly the same person with the same intelligence and personality and ability and experience and body of work. And if they find they're treated completely differently mm. once they start living in the other gender, then that to me is the ultimate proof of the existence of the authority gap because you have controlled for all the other variables and isolated the only one that matters, which is gender. Mm. And I came across this fascinating story, which I write about in the book, of two Stanford science professors who each transitioned in opposite directions at exactly the same time. By coincidence, they used to meet up mm -hmm. and compare notes, have lunch. And Ben Barris, who was a neuroscientist, said once he started living as a man, he said, I've had the thought a million times. I'm just taken more seriously now. He said, my work is taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he put it, is taken mm. more seriously now that people see me as a man. And someone was overheard at the back of one of his seminars who didn't know his history, didn't know he had transitioned, saying, oh, Ben Barrows gave a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's, i.e. his own work. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> I know. And meanwhile, um, Joan Roughgarden, who transitioned in the other direction, she was in, is an evolutionary biologist, and... She, of course, had exactly the opposite experience. And she said when she had been living as a man, as a young uh, professor at Stanford, she said, I just felt like I was on this conveyor belt to success. and Everything was so easy. I kept being promoted. I kept being paid more. I kept being given, you know, she, she won a seat on the university senate committee, that sort of thing. And she said, once I started living as a woman, all that changed. 
And she started coming up against the sort of behavior that arises as a result of the authority gap. So being being underestimated, being patronized, being interrupted or talked over, having your views ignored in a meeting, having your expertise challenged, having your authority resisted. She came mm. up against all this behavior. And she said to start with, I thought, well, if I'm gonna live as a woman, I'm darn well gonna suffer the same discrimination as other women. And then she said, well, the thrill of that has worn off, I can tell you. Yes. And yeah. her conclusion was, men are assumed to be competent until proven otherwise. Women are assumed to be incompetent until they prove otherwise. Yeah. And this is actually what the evidence shows. So women are twice as likely as men to say that they have to provide evidence of their competence, much more likely than men to say that people are often surprised by their abilities. And women of colour, much more likely than white women to say those things. What's the impact of that reality? Well, it is hugely undermining of women's confidence for a start. Mm. You know, if you make it a point at a meeting and either you're immediately shut down or challenged or your viewer is ignored, that's bound to undermine your confidence, isn't it? And next time you'll think, well, there's no point speaking up here because either my opinion's gonna be trashed or no one will take any notice of it or I'll be talked over. Mm. So we're, you know, we have an uphill struggle. And it yeah, and it, it is, and it becomes sort of self-fulfilling because you hear a lot of senior men say, oh, well, she just doesn't step up. She needs to work on her executive presence in a meeting, even though, you know, you, you get conditioned to actually step back because when you do step in, either, as you say, you're spoken over or potentially women are dismissed. Sometimes you hear women say, it was just like I wasn't there. Absolutely, yeah. And it's also very hard to to project exactly the right amount of confidence because if you're not confident enough, no one takes you seriously at all. But if you are confident enough, if you behave as confidently and as assertively as your male colleagues, which you have mm. to do in order to be listened to, in order to be taken seriously, quite often you are then disliked because yes. you have gone against stereotype, because you have gone against the what are called the communal stereotypes that we attach to women. In other words, being gentle and unthreatening mm -hmm. and warm and uncompetitive and unself-promoting. And instead following what are known as the agentic stereotypes that we attach to men, being confident and assertive and being in charge and showing leadership. Because women have gone against those stereotypes, it makes us feel uncomfortable. And we yes. tend to dislike women who do that. And we start calling them abrasive or strident shrill or aggressive, shrill, exactly. Yeah, bossy, pushy, overbearing. And that's Which a challenge, never say that about incredible men. tension. And leadership has is is the the sort of heartland of it, isn't it? Because agentic qualities are still so associated with leadership. So when women step into their leadership and need to, as you say, demonstrate confidence and decisiveness and exercise their authority, they can often a feel very uncomfortable about that because it doesn't necessarily come naturally, and b get quite a bit of pushback around it. That's right. And you may say, well, women should just grow a thicker skin and who cares if people dislike you. The trouble is that what the research shows is that likability is a much more important mm -hmm. factor for women than it is for men when it comes to hiring and promotion decisions, particularly yeah. if it's men doing the hiring or the promotion. So yeah. it's incredibly hard for women to get this right. And what I say in the book, I interviewed about 40 or 50 
incredibly authoritative, you know, powerful, successful women, as well as others who who weren't, but, you know, former presidents and prime ministers, Supreme Court justices, that sort of thing. And mm. what they all said, I think, to a woman is you have to convey warm authority. Mm -hmm. So as a woman, you have to be warm as well as authoritative if you don't want people to dislike you. So that means yeah. putting in a huge amount of extra effort to be very emotionally intelligent, empathetic, read the room very carefully, smile a lot, use humor, all these things to deflect any hostility that having authority might otherwise produce in the people around yes. you. And it's mm. exhausting and it's a burden that men simply don't have to bear. And some women also aren't particularly good at it. And why should they be? You know, yes. you think of a if, a, if a male CEO is described as tough, we think that's admirable. You know, he's good at making decisions and he's good at being in charge. If a female CEO is described as tough, she's a bitch. And mm -hmm. so you've got to do something to mitigate that immediate assumption that if you're going to be tough, you're going to be a bitch. Yeah. And that is not a trade-off that men in leadership need to make. Uh, the likability competence tension is is much more uh, enhanced for women. So many women will also, as you say, will just step away from leadership roles because it just looks too hard and too exhausting uh, and may well have got some real feedback about bossiness or shrillness when they are just doing uh, I, you know, when they are, their behaviour is identical to men, but getting very different reactions and people are responding and it's impacting differently, uh, both men and women, because obviously these are, you know, age-old, millennia-in-the-making stereotypes about men take charge and women take care and and when women start behaving, in inverted commas, counter-stereotypically, they get pushed back or are penalised. But what was your sense of, is it men just doing this or do we all, men and women, bring these subtle biases to how we deal with women in leadership in particular? I think we all have these biases. Uh, and so in quite a lot of the studies that I cite in the book, women are just as biased as men. So there was one, for instance, where the researchers sent an application for a lab manager position to science professors in top American universities. And mm. it was an identical application, same CV, same covering letter, and they randomly assigned it a male or a female name. And the so-called male candidate was deemed to be significantly more competent, more hireable, was offered a higher starting salary, and the professor said they were more interested in mentoring him. This was both male and female yes. science professors. But mm. not all the studies showed the same amount of bias. So when it came to negotiating, for instance, um, when women, a female candidate was trying to negotiate, you know, applying for a job, perhaps asking for higher pay or for, or for a better job title, male hirers were five times more likely to say they didn't want to work with a woman who negotiated than with a man who did. Mm. Whereas female yeah. hirers were, you know, they were the same with both. Um, but that's very difficult because women are often blamed for, you know, well, if only you ask for more money, you know, the gender pay gap would disappear. It's not the case. Yeah. It's nothing like that simple. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, you know, they are very often responding uh, very acutely to what they understand that they will pay a real social cost, you know, or social capital will go down by, by actually asking for more money. Um, and it's much more subtle than, you know, and, and then, of course, you get into the notion of, well, if women just learn to negotiate better, <laughs> and yet we know when they are negotiating on someone else's behalf, uh, they exceed uh, the outcomes of men. So a really subtle game. And, you know, we know this 
is an irrational product of our social conditioning and outdated stereotypes. But are these stereotypes atrophying at all as we start to see more women in leadership roles? They are, but very, very slowly. And I'm just trying to hurry it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there, there is, uh, uh, there's a thing called the implicit association test, which has been devised by some Harvard social psychologists, mm. which, I mean, it has its critics, but it does measure how quickly and accurately you can associate male and female nouns with work and home nouns. And most of us are much quicker and more accurate um, associating mother with kitchen table and father with board table, you know, <laughs> um, nice. it's just easier to do that. And that shows that but this sort of bias has very slightly fallen in the last 15 years, but it's only fallen by a few percentage points and basically still about two thirds of us have it. So yeah. uh, it's gone down, I think, so from the early 70s glacial, to the mid 60s. It? Yeah. Exactly. It's just glacial. Yeah. And what I say in the book is there's not much we can actually do about our unconscious bias, which is what that's measuring. I mean, it's called unconscious for a reason. Mm. Uh, we can't put a lid on it. All of us pretty much have it. I have it, and I've written a whole book about it, lamenting it. But what we can do is be more aware of when it surfaces and then try and correct for it. And that yeah. we can change quite easily. So yeah. it's a question of awareness, of noticing when you start finding, say, a woman in authority dislikable. And then you can say to yourself, hmm, I wonder if that's telling me more about myself and my outdated stereotypes and less about her. Yes. So how else do we hurry it up? Well, you are right that I think the more women we have in authority, the more quickly our unconscious bias is going to change because part of it is simply to do with the incongruity of having women in charge. You know, we just automatically mm. associate, if someone tells you something about a science professor, you're gonna picture a man, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then if you discover it's a woman, you know, you're slightly brought up short and you go, oh, right, okay, fine, you know, great. But nonetheless, you're slightly surprised. I think the more women we have in positions of authority, the less we'll feel those feelings of incongruity and the easier it's going to be. So, you know, I use the example of, for my grandparents, seeing a woman driving a car would have been really incongruous and right, they'd have been really yeah. surprised. For my parents, seeing a woman uh, in a work, in, in a workplace, in a smart workplace, wearing trousers was thought to be mm. incongruous. You know, neither of these are anymore. And so it's going to be hard for the women in sort of in the process between now and then to get the more senior jobs because of all the bias that I write about. But once there are more of them, I think our unconscious bias will slowly start to dissipate. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the, you talked about the experience of having their authority and expertise underestimated or challenged, sort of being normal for women and becoming skillful and aware about how we manage that. But what about the intersectionality of race and class? Yes, well, as, as I said, women of colour are twice as likely to say these things than white women, um, and women in general are twice as likely to say them as men. So basically, the further away you get from the white male middle class default, mm. the wider the authority gap is. So it's wider for women of colour than it is for white women. It's wider for working class women than it is for middle class women. It's very much wider for women with disabilities than it is for women without them. 
On sexuality, the evidence is somewhat more mixed. I think probably because lesbians are already expected to be a bit more masculine in their personality than straight mm. women are. So I think perhaps they can get away more with showing those agentic character traits that I talked about. They're not expected to be as demure and unassuming right. as straight women are. But for women because of colour in particular, yeah, it's very difficult. Really and then interesting. you. And then you have the added problem that, you know, if a suppose a black woman, a completely brilliant black woman gets given a senior job, people will discount it and say, oh, she was just a diversity hire, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's, very, so it's even harder. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's even harder for her to prove herself. Yeah. And we certainly hear that from really experienced uh, black women who, you know, feel that token burden. Uh, still much more so than the women over the last 10 years who, because there are more women in senior roles, that's atrophied a little, but it has not for senior black women who feel that they they are carrying a race and gender uh, stereotype uh, very heavily into, oh, it's a, it's a diversity and inclusion hire. Mm. Yeah, that's really tough. And, you know, so if we all, men and women, have these biases. How do women assert their authority, therefore, without getting pushed back? You, you mentioned needing to exercise your authority with warmth. What else have you observed and what does the research tell us about what works? That is about the only thing that does work. Um, and I'm sorry to say, mm. because I hate having to advise people to do it, you know, if it doesn't feel authentic to them. I mean, I notice myself, if I'm talking on Zoom, I've noticed in the last two years or so using Zoom how much I smile when I talk. And yeah. I think this is subconscious. I think it's subconscious learned behavior that I'm worried that people are going to resist my authority. So I have to come across as, as warm and smiley. Um, and now to me, it's automatic. And so it doesn't feel inauthentic. But I think for a lot of people, it does. But I still feel I have to advise it because for the moment, at least, there is no other route. And I don't want to say to young women, you know, why should you have to do this? You just behave just like the men do, because if they do that, I know they're going to pay yeah, a price for it. It doesn't work. Mm. I hope it's transitional. I hope in a generation or two's time, we will no longer have to do it. But for now, with the world as it is, I fear we do. I believe, uh, yes. I believe that's the case as well. And the more skillful we are at it and being able to, you know, move from what were roadblocks into managing these pretty big speed bumps, then, you know, in a generation or two, the woman coming behind us will not experience that same counter-stereotypical uh, backlash. Um, but it is a challenge because you want women to feel authentic. And if they don't have um, that relational exposure and, and being able to have a really good radar for people in the room, but, you know, I guess my, maybe it's glass half full or Pollyanna, there's an expectation that let's hope that being warm and engaging and authoritative are leadership attributes that men will learn from as well. Um, yes, absolutely. So if, and in fact, if yeah, you, and, and we can sorry, find a model I, for a much more rounded human type of leadership. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, if, if you look at um, management, what, what you know, the academic research that's been done on the best form of management, transformational leadership, as they call it, is the most successful form of leadership. And that mm. does involve being emotionally intelligent. And it means listening more, you know, being on receive as well as transmit, uh, being more democratic, um, engaging your, uh, engaging and inspiring your employees, not being hierarchical and top down and directional. And, uh, you know, these are all character traits that would be good to encourage in men as well as women.
And women actually, mm. on average, are slightly better at it than men at the moment. But let's have more men mm. behaving like that. Yeah. So if women don't have the advantage men do of being assumed to be competent unless proven otherwise, how do you see that more broadly playing out in organisations? Well, I think it means that women get promoted more slowly than men do. And that's why in almost every organisation you see pretty much 50-50 graduate entry. And then, you know, this terrible tail off, the broken pipeline, as people Mm. call it. Now, I know some of that is to do with women deciding to take their foot off the pedal if they have children. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of it happens before women even have children. Men get promoted faster. Um, And it's it's partly, I think, because we have this dreadful habit of mistaking confidence for competence. And as I was saying earlier, it's very hard for women to be exactly the right amount of confident. And if you have, you know, a young man who's extremely confident and tells you how great he is and how brilliantly he's doing in his job, you might be inclined to believe him and take him at his word and promote him. And women are not allowed to behave like that because no. women who they would be penalised, in fact, oh, for advocating yes. oh, for themselves like that. Absolutely, yes, that would absolutely, be really very inappropriate. Much, yeah, mm. really inappropriate. And so, you know, we're much more likely to promote the man who tells us how wonderful he is over the woman who might actually be super competent, but not saying that. So yeah. it's, it, you know, it's re- it really behoves managers to be much more careful about judging people on their objective ability not on how they present themselves and their achievements. Mm, I think um, you cited research where women tend to underestimate their capability and their competence as well, even uh, particularly in male-dominated fields like finance, where they they actually think they know a lot less, and then when they're tested, they know a lot more, whereas the men will continue to overestimate their competence. So just that self-confidence in itself must have huge implications for how people behave and how people demonstrate their aspirations and their ambitions. Yes. And I, you know, if you're a manager, I think it's terribly important to encourage women to apply for promotion. So often they'll say, oh, but I'm not sure I'm ready yet. I'm not sure I'm good enough. And they need to be encouraged to believe that they are good enough because, you know, not many of their male colleagues are likely to be saying that or possibly even thinking it. But another Mm. problem, another study I came across showed, and this is even more worrying, I think, that 70% of men will evaluate a man more highly than a woman for achieving exactly the same goals. Mm. So you can be just as good as a man, but your male managers will think your male colleague is better than you, even though you're just as good. So that's really worrying. That rises to 75% for men in senior positions. So we are constantly being underestimated. The more senior you become, uh, the more rarefied and the more intense that scrutiny becomes and that judgment. So you can understand how, you know, you talked about uh, women taking their foot off the pedal, but if you're being held to a higher standard in terms of your competence and expertise and a higher standard for your communal, social, volunteering, pro-social behaviour in organisations, um, you know, your foot is on running, you know, you, you've got your foot to the floor <laughs> pretty much Absolutely. By, by the, for the first day you decide to even take on a supervisor role because it starts to get noisy then, doesn't it? As soon as you step into... Uh, an implied authority, then women start to experience these strange signals uh, and observing that men behave like that, but what works for him doesn't work for me. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. And and men can get away with so much more than women as well. So men are allowed to fail and have another crack and women on the whole aren't. So that's much harder for them. And then, of course, they've got the extra burden of more unpaid work at home than their partners. So, yeah, they're they're facing trouble on every front, really. Yeah. Um, What impact do you believe... For, for those women, so a lot of the listeners out there are already in management roles and in senior leadership roles, but also aspiring to leadership where these stereotypes associated with leadership are still imbued with masculine qualities. What advice would you have for female managers and leaders, given the, the real, you know, this reality of the gender authority gap? How might you get them to, you've given us great wisdom about this is the reality. We need to be both authoritative and warm. And we need to be able to master that and be skillful around it. What other advice would you have for women looking down that pipe of a leadership career and often might be just tipping into, well, maybe I'll just tip out that pipeline, that leaky pipeline. What's going to stop the leaks in terms of individuals understanding what's required of them? I would say try to recruit allies because it's much harder to advocate for yourself than to have someone else advocating on your behalf. Suppose you always find it hard to get people to listen to you at meetings or you get interrupted at meetings. Uh, if you say, oh, you know, please let me finish, stop interrupting me, you know, it's quite likely that people will start to think of you as difficult or oversensitive or paranoid, uh, you know, all these very unfair adjectives. Whereas If you mention that behaviour to someone else who's going to be in the room at the next meeting, ideally the chair of the meeting, but if not, just a colleague, um, so that he, again, ideally a man, because men listen to other men more than they listen to women, can Mm. say something like, oh, I was, you know, suppose you were being interrupted. Your ally can say, oh, hang on, I was really interested in what Penny was saying there. Or suppose you make a point and no one takes any notice and... John makes exactly the point 10 minutes later and everybody applauds him. Your ally can say, oh, I'm so glad you agree with what Penny said earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these are good ways of drawing attention to the behaviour in a way that isn't going to penalise you later. Yes, and just also raises the consciousness of the people who are chairing meetings. Just It's sort of like a new courtesy around meetings just to track airtime to notice because you know you also your book talks about women men believe women dominate conversations and yet women talk, tend to talk for only 30 percent of the time so the perception is the reality and if you can get a chair or other people as you say allies around the table men um who are more conscious of that then they can just interject without it being dramatic, you know, as you say, like, oh, gosh, that was a really interesting idea uh, that you're talking about. It's sort of a build on the one Jenny was talking about 10 minutes ago. Jenny, would you like to expand? You know, I've seen chairs do this very skillfully, and it doesn't really create defensiveness in the men around. Sometimes it can be a smile, a wry smile, uh, so that, you know, you're not dialing up defensiveness or you're just making people aware of the dynamic that's going on and being able to manage and mitigate it. Even small things I've seen, because women are expected to volunteer more because of the feminine stereotype around their pro-social skills, just never ask for volunteers. (laughs) Always make sure, because women will step in and are expected to step in. And if they don't, 
they are seen as really not good troopers. You know, they're not good organisational citizens. So I think you're absolutely right. The ability to build allies and what else? What advice would you give women who are looking, looking at a career in leadership and realising that the navigation will be challenging until we have more women in leadership? Any other advice you would have for them? Yes, I would say don't blame yourself, blame the system. And mm. so I think to any woman reading this book will be, I mean, she might be made quite angry, but she'll also be reassured that it's nothing personal. You know, she will have witnessed all this sort of behavior towards herself. And I'm sure in the past she will have beat herself, beaten herself up and thought, mm. oh gosh, it's my fault. You know, yeah, I made I'm the point the at a meeting. And mm -hmm. I'm the problem, exactly. And, you know, I wasn't confident enough or I wasn't eloquent enough or I wasn't articulate enough. No, you were just too female. <laughs> And therefore, yes. don't blame yourself. So, you know, there was a great study, this this thing, I've the phenomenon I've talked about earlier about making a point and no one taking any notice, and then a man makes it and gets all the credit for it. There was a great study done where the researchers put people into a mixed gender group to discuss a child custody case. And they deliberately chose that topic because it's quite female stereotyped and you'd expect mm. women to be good at it. And they gave the group all sorts of information about the family concerned but they gave one or two individuals a piece of information that the rest of the group didn't have. And when that inf information was presented by a man, it was six times more likely to be used by the group in its deliberations than when it was six introduced times. by a woman. Six times more likely. And this wow. was a mixed gender group, so it was women as well mm -hmm. as men. They were listening to the man, they weren't listening to the woman. Yeah. And it's that has shocking, huge implications. Yeah. Yeah. So great yeah. advice. You're not the problem. The system is the problem. But the system won't change until we can uh, have more women in leadership, not only surviving, but thriving there and feeling they can do that with integrity and authenticity. So it's a it's a real skill to master. And uh, yeah, your your work really has been hugely helpful, Marianne, for so many women I work with because of that very fact. They can understand it. Okay, so this is the context within which I'm working. And most of them have done, you know, leadership development and a core of leadership development is to understand the context and with within which you're working and to respond appropriately. Uh, the thing is that the women have to have a, just a great big toolkit to be able to do that sensibly and to do it with skill. But can I, can I just interrupt? Yeah. The system won't change until we all change our behavior. So it's not women yeah. we need to fix. And exactly. you know, you ask me for advice to women. It's not women we need to fix. It's how we all perceive and interact with and react to women that needs to change. That's what we need to fix. And that involves men. So, and exactly. in fact, it's mainly men, not entirely, but mainly men. They need to change their reactions and their perceptions and their behavior. So, mm. so much of these conversations are about what can women do? You know, what can men do is my question a lot, yeah. but they need to get involved. They need to want to change and they need to be interested in the subject. And that, you know, they just need to take positive action because the world won't change otherwise. Yeah. And so many of those senior men are just so frustrated. You know, it's not an evil plot trying to keep women out of boardrooms. They're so frustrated they can't bring their talented women through. And then once it becomes personal, they can be fantastic allies. And I absolutely agree with you. The, 
the, the, the notion that the women are the problem or some sort of deficit remedial work needs to be done on the women, it just actually compounds their lack of confidence and their confusion about what works or what doesn't work. So having male allies that can understand it and mastering the skills of authority and warmth, really powerful. Yeah. And actually, you know, instead of sending women on assertiveness training courses, I think we should send at least some men on bullshit avoidance courses. I love it. Exactly. Because often we're, taught, we're, we're dealing with the wrong things. There's no point in just telling women to negotiate harder because it's not going to get the response or just be more assertive and confident uh, because uh, they will get pushback. It won't have the same effect. I love that. And some bullshit avoidance courses for, for men. Yeah. That's a good one. Marianne, anything finally in closing that you would like to, to leave us with? Um, the body of work that you have distilled is absolutely phenomenal in your book. And uh, the authority gap, I, I think, will remain on so many people's shelves as a source of not only great data, but real inspiration. And I certainly want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you, Penny. I think I would, uh, I would advise any organisation to try to get as many of its female employees into a room together as possible with no men in the room, guarantee them anonymity and ask them to tell their stories, to talk about mm. the sort of culture they are encountering in that organisation. You know, can they get their point across at meetings? Do they get interrupted? Do the men patronise them? Do they assume they don't know as much as they actually do? And to draw all this together and show it to the senior management and say, is this the culture we want to have in this organisation? And if not, let's do something about it. And this may well be the reason why women are leaving their jobs more than men are, because they can't bear working in that sort of culture. And it's something yep. you can do something about if you only have the will to do it. Yes, indeed. Marianne, thank you so much for the conversation today and your work in the Authority Gap. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, I know that just this conversation alone will be helping women uh, navigate better and men uh, to become better allies and for senior leaders to be able to create cultures and organisations that everyone uh, can thrive and where everyone's leadership can make a big difference. A great pleasure. Marianne Sieghardt. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform and join me again soon. You can also find more information and resources on building your best leadership self on pennydevolk.com, including my blog that covers topics from how to negotiate powerfully as a woman and building your authority through to having your voice heard and boosting confidence, all in support of building your leadership career.